Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is the only place to hear unadulterated, unvarnished and untainted news, views and common sense. But you know that, don't you? After a weekend of doom, gloom and dire predictions of the sky falling in if we leave the European Union without a deal, thanks to a leaked report about Operation Yellowhammer, we are back to tell you what is actually happening as we meander towards leaving the European Union on October the 31st. It's pretty obvious what's going on, isn't it? Former cabinet ministers like Spreadsheet Phil Hammond and Jeremy Hunt have been been very busy rubbishing anything Boris Johnson wants to do, and the Remainers have all fallen for it. There could be protests across the UK. There might be interruptions to fuel supplies. There may be a three-month meltdown at ports connected to the Irish border. Lib Dem fearmonger-in-chief Tom Brake said no deal has, in his words, wartime implications in peacetime. What? What does he mean by that? Whatever is he talking about? What do you mean wartime implications? They're always telling us that we shouldn't be harking back to uh, mentioning the Second World War, right? Well, Tom Brake has just said wartime implications. Well, is there going to be rations? Are there going to be air raid sirens going off? Are there going to be people attacking us on boats? For heaven's sake. Meanwhile, Lib Dem MEP Chris Davis branded Brexiteers a bunch of cowards in a tweet and was roundly condemned for it. Not least by many people who have fought for this country, many people who have served in the armed forces of this country who said, we voted to leave the European Union. How dare you call us cowards? I really don't think uh, that MEP Chris Davis is uh, properly addressing the good people of this country and I don't think he should be talking to people like that. So this morning I'm declaring that we've had enough of the rude, supercilious, arrogant and downright superior attitude of those who voted to remain and we're fighting back. I'll be telling you how later on. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later, we're joined in the studio by Raki Batan from the Henry Jackson Society. He'll be taking your calls and giving us his thoughts uh, on Jihadi Jack and the problem with the left in this country. Plus, we'll be asking why our power grid could be in serious trouble. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
Well, the papers and the television and the news channels last night and yesterday and all over the weekend were full uh, of stories about doom and gloom. Operation Yellowhammer, uh, which has been leaked to our newspaper, the Sunday Times, over the course of the weekend, in which uh, we are told that there's all sorts of terrible things going to happen. Uh, there's going to be a sort of meltdown at the border. There's going to be an Irish hard border. There's going to be no food. There's going to be no drugs. We've basically heard it all before. And the trouble is, even if any of it was in any way true... People are sick to death of being told stories that they don't believe. And so as, so as soon as any politician opens his mouth and starts to say, look, see, I told you, all you've got to do is go, Remainer, tick. If somebody says, actually, there's nothing to worry about, this is an old report and you're just going to carry on regardless, you go, Brexiteer, tick. Unfortunately, there is no space for common sense, which is where we come in, because here at the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, we are going to tell you what the truth is. We are not going to tell you that everything is going to be absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. But we are going to tell you that no-deal Brexit should happen, will happen, and when it does happen, it will not be a disaster of proportions the like of which we have never seen. Tom Brake seems to think we are going to have wartime problems. I really don't know what he means by that, but he knows that those are not the sort of words that politicians should use. It's not very helpful. Chris Davis, meanwhile, the MEP uh, for the southwest of England, uh, said that basically uh, we're cowards for wanting to leave the European Union. Well, I don't think, one, that's a very patriotic way to behave, and two, I really don't think that it's the way that he should be talking to the people who elected him and the people who, let's face it, pay his wages. So we're going to give you a little taster of why we bring you the good news here on Talk Radio. Whenever we're about to talk to someone who wants to in and talk to me about the likes of Chris Davis and why he's so wrong to talk about people who have a political belief and who have a vote cast to leave the European Union as cowards, then this is what you're going to hear. And that will prefix any telephone call that you make today to this number 0344 499 1000 in support of leaving the European Union, but also, and this is the added bonus for you, also to give us a nice message to the Remainers, because they're so bitter, they're so twisted, they're so nasty, they're so ghastly, that what they need is a little bit of civilised talk from those of us on the right side of the argument, on the right side of history, and on the side of the people who, let's face it, are the winners, OK? I think that's pretty well sorted that one out. Let's talk to George Pascoe-Watson, former political editor of The Sun, now senior partner at Portland Communications. George, a very, very good morning to you. And to you too, Mike. Now, I think you'll find that I have set out the stall there for what we do at Talk Radio and what I do here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham because I, for one, am sick to death of being lectured at, uh, being told that, uh, you know, the people who voted for Brexit are idiots, racists, uneducated, morons. You know, I really can't believe that this is how low the uh, level of political dialogue has got in this country? Well, it is a very, very well-captured description there, Mike, you've just given our listeners this morning. It has become completely black or white. You're one thing or you're, or you're the other. Yeah. And the reality is, you know, very great minds are working away in Whitehall and other places in Britain to try and make sure that a no-deal Brexit is completely survivable. Yes, there will be difficulties. There's no question about that. Any change moment will be difficult. But the positives that come out of it are things that we should be focusing on. And as a nation, traditionally, actually, we are very, very good 
uh, going with the rough with the smooth and making the best out of a difficult job. And, and there are very, very good reasons to believe why uh, leaving the European Union will actually benefit this country in the medium to long term. Exactly right. And presumably Operation Yellowhammer, which, as I said, uh, has largely been dismissed by those who are not particularly concerned about the consequences after uh, a no-deal Brexit, um, it is an old report, isn't it? It is something which was pr first published last year to a large extent, and it has been rubbished, in fact, by some, um, not least uh, those in the, in the Gibraltar side of, uh, of life, saying that this is an old and out-of-date piece of information. Yes, it's true that there has to be every worst-case scenario worked through. You would be crazy if you didn't consider what's the worst thing that could happen in any given sector. Uh, and it's right and responsible for governments and businesses to think of those things. Uh, but that is not to say that the things in Yellowhammer are going to happen. Many people have made the point that even in the last three weeks since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, he's stepped up and accelerated the work done to try and overcome the, the worst-case scenarios. And most people who are in charge of the process are pretty clear. We've looked at the books, we've looked at the preparations, we know where the dangers could be, and we've taken steps to make sure they are mitigated. Listen, let's not pretend there will be some difficulties for some people. Things will change. There's no question about it. And we have to be real about that. But we can't uh, sort of roll up into a ball and say, oh, God, we've got no power in these things. We have the power to take different decisions, to marshal people in different ways, uh, and to communicate that successfully so people know what they're doing and that we can carry on building a future Britain outside the European Union. Well, exactly. But also, when you hear someone like Tom Brake, who is the Brexit spokesman to Liberal Democrats, the party that claims to be on a resurgence, the party that claims to be the one that wants to somehow steward us through all of this, more talking about wartime uh, problems, uh, similar problems that we will experience experience and haven't experienced since the Second World War. Oh, it's madness, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's certainly slightly irresponsible yeah. to give the impression that we are going into wartime situation. I mean, no wonder that's going to panic people. Of course it's going to panic people. The, the reality is he is a politician. His vested interest as a Lib Dem is positioning his party as the only true Brexit party because he reckons a general election is just around the corner and the Lib Dems are going to do very well by positioning themselves as the non-Brexit party. That's his interest. But he's using public fear to promote his own political ambitions and uh, I'll leave your listeners to work out if that's responsible well, or not. Well, quite. I mean, the one area there where there does seem to be some genuine concern, not least from people from the European Union who live in this country, right, uh, is what the, what the proposal is going to be uh, around about freedom of movement because there's a few conflicting stories, not all of them coming from Operation Yellowhammer, but basically where people are being told one thing on the government's official website uh, and something else in the newspapers and nobody's quite clear on precisely what the plan is. And that's always the difficulty here, is clear clarity of communication matters so much. I know that Priti Patel, who is the new Home Secretary and is a pretty tough cookie, uh, she has uh, asked Home Office officials to work out ways of imposing a uh, freedom of movement ban on November the 1st. So the morning we leave, that's when the system will come in. She's pretty hard line about that, and I think you'll find more and more Home Office communication about that. She's even sent her officials to Singapore to work out what a uh, lack of freedom of movement position looks like and how it can be implemented in this country. Some people will complain, some people will mo moan, and there's no question, immediately at some borders, uh, it might be difficult. But uh, people have time, and they are organising themselves to ensure that the new system will 
will be workable. Yes, indeed. And Boris Johnson has pledged that he does not want to end uh, in any way, shape or form the rights of people who have been living here for many years from the European Union, who work here and who pay taxes here. And he's of no, uh, as far as I can tell anyway, he's got no uh, uh, sort of uh, appetite for, for kicking people out of the country or stopping people from coming in who want to do genuine work here. Not at all. And uh, I think it's laughable when I hear um, people on the left accuse Boris Johnson of running a sort of extreme right-wing government. I Nothing know. like it. You only have to look at Boris Johnson and to know him a little bit to understand that he is far from right-wing. He's actually very centrist. And when he ran London for eight years, he was incredibly inclusive uh, in a way that most conservatives at the time felt uncomfortable with. So he's a very inclusive guy. He's not at all about kicking people out of the country. What he is about, though, is ensuring that... You know, when we leave the European Union, the freedom of movement is one of the first things that goes in a no-deal situation. And we have to adhere to that. We have to... Don't forget, millions of people up and down this country voted Brexit partly because they wanted... They didn't want a free-for-all of migration into this country because mm. this country hasn't got the infrastructure, the schools, the hospitals uh, and the healthcare system to, to cope with just a, a never-ending flow of people. No, of course. And Boris himself is heading to Berlin and Paris this week. He's going to secure what he regards as a new Brexit deal so after all the smoke and mirrors of you know we'll leave with no deal if that's what's necessary he's still trying to get a deal by the looks of things well he is i mean he's still his position is very clear and unchanged which is i would like a deal i think it's in our interests, it's in europe's interests to have a deal but i'll be very clear with you uh, if we can't do a deal, we will leave unquestionably on May the, uh, May the 31st. Uh, uh, sorry, October the 31st. It's easy, listen, it's easy to mistake the date for May the 31st because we were going to leave on May the 31st. Then we were going to leave on March the 29th. I mean, listen, George, you're not the only one who's messing around with the dates. <laughs> so confusing. So he's absolutely adamant. But I think when he goes to see... Uh, Merkel and Macron this week, he's going to get pretty much no change. And I think that the reality is, although Brexit is central to everything, they won't be able to make any progress on this issue at all, because Merkel and Macron are also in their similar position, which is, we can't show we're bending in any way. Some people take the view the Prime Minister should have gone to Washington, the other direction as his first foreign trip, uh, as a symbol of uh, where he thinks his friendships lie. But he's chosen to go to uh, the European capitals. That's because this coming weekend there's a very, very important summit in Biarritz, uh, in the Hyatt Hotel there, uh, beautiful hotel right there on the beach. And that's where a lot of business could be done behind the scenes. But Boris has to now stick to his plan, which is we are unrepenting. We will leave on October the 31st. Because what makes it difficult is there are as many as 40 Conservative MPs now who are Remainers, who are privately orchestrating so that they can stop Britain leaving on the 31st of October. And that weakens the Prime Minister's position because the European heads are going to say, well, listen, Boris, it's all very well you saying you're just going to walk out on the 31st. But, you know, you, it's not politically possible for you to do so because your own MPs are going to have a coalition with other MPs at different parties to stop that happening. No, quite. Funnily enough, that was going to be my next question to you. You know, is there more to fear from Boris's perspective from his own party than there is from any kind of, you know, so-called, you know, temporary caretaker prime minister, whether it's Jeremy Corbyn or anybody else? I mean, that was all launched upon us last week. Um, it didn't seem to go down terribly well. The uh, problem with the Remainers is they can't agree seemingly on anything uh, because some of them want to remain uh, and not leave at all. Some of them want to leave with a deal. Some of them want to put Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street. Some of them don't. You know, but is, in fact, the biggest danger to Boris those Tory MPs you just, you just mentioned? 
Well, it, it is. I mean, very often that's the perversity of the situation, and they could potentially stop uh, the Prime Minister from taking us out by bringing him down, by bringing the government down. So Conservative MPs literally voting for their own downfall yeah. for what they would regard as the bigger prize, which is Britain staying in the EU. And that is why, of course, uh, people around the Prime Minister take the view we should just shut down Parliament uh, for a two-week period during the October the 31st, and then we we leave by default, and there's nothing that anybody can do about it. No, exactly right. And as far as the um, the sort of the leaking that was going on over the weekend is concerned, I mean, a lot of people looking towards those uh, people like Phil Ham uh, Philip Hammond, people like Jeremy Hunt. I mean, it's definitely um, coming from somewhere inside of what was the former government, isn't it? Well, I mean, I, I don't know, but the, 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 the suspicion, if you're doing, you know, Hunt the leaker, is this is a Treasury document. Uh, it's maybe a cabinet office document who's recently been in the cabinet office or the treasury uh, in whose interest it is to stop Brexit. Well, yeah. both Philip Hammond, um, but also David Liddington, who was effectively the deputy prime minister yeah. under Theresa May, a very good guy, by the way. But he, you know, he is a, Bre he is a Remainer and uh, is part of the coalition to try and stop Remain. But you're always going to find this in politics. But it does definitely weak Boris's hand as he goes to front up these big international leaders to say, we are serious, we're going to leave without a deal. If they turn around and say, you can't leave without a deal, mate, you haven't got the power because of your own troops. Yes, quite. Well, I always ask every guest that we have on now, George, precisely what you think is going to happen. I know that it's difficult to look into the old crystal ball, um, but there's a kind of a growing divide now between those who think that Boris will try and go for an election before leaving the European Union, i.e. either try and organise it before the, the actual date of October 31st or get a short extension and then get an election and then uh, vote and then leave. Um, or there are those like me who think they'll wait until having left and then have one. I think he will leave uh, and then have an election. That's his golden scenario. Uh, and he may have the possibility to do that. I'm slightly more of an optimist than others that he will manage to get some change to the backstop, which will be enough to get him a deal through. But then he will go to the country and create a proper majority. And it will be very exciting, actually, to see Britain out of the EU under a leader with absolute clarity who knows what he wants to do for this country and to see the engine of the economy be relit with fresh investment coming into this country as we hit a new surge of optimism. Well done. That was almost as good a speech at the end there as mine was at the beginning. George Pascoe Watson, uh, former political editor of The Sun, now senior partner at Portland Communications. Don't forget, this is the only place where you will hear the unvarnished truth. Do not listen anywhere else. Do not worry about those other sort of, you know, uh, pale imitations of what we do here at Talk Radio. You know what to do. You know what you're getting. You know that your voice can be heard on this radio station, the voice of common sense. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far <laughs> enough. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Divided This is 
is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000. Loads more coming up. We're going to be talking about how much time people waste in meetings with David Spencer, who's talk radio's news editor, man who wastes a lot of time in meetings. No, I'm just kidding. He's going to come in and talk to us about it. We're sitting here uh, with Rakiba San from the Centre for Radicalisation and Terrorism uh, at the Henry Jackson Society. Uh, Rakiba, we're going to take a quick call now from sure. Andy in Littlehampton. Wants to ask a question about Jihadi Jack. Andy, very good uh, morning to you. Uh, good morning, Mike, and thanks very much for having me on the programme again. Not at all. Um, uh, Rakid, uh, good morning to you. Morning. Um, obviously, I, I personally um, support uh, Prissy Patel, the Home Office, uh, stripping Jihadi Jack, Jack Letts, of his um, citizenship. But with at least 320 reported cases of people still waiting in the wings to... Uh, go back to their various native countries. Um, I think probably the way ahead, and I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, the way ahead is we've got to have some sort of international agreement, uh, an international court founded through an international agreement to try these cases and dispose of them correctly. Something similar to The Hague, but something which is more bespoke to, you know... Uh, because I don't think we've ever had it before where citizens of a country have gone away to f fight, essentially, against the country where they're inherent in. No, okay. I, I, I think that's an absolutely fantastic point. I think one of the criticisms of Brexit, interesting, is that, you know, p people feel that Britain is very much adopting an isolationist philosophy. I think this issue, I think we do need more international cooperation because we're not the only country where uh, our citizens have left to join Islamic State. Right. So I do think there needs to be greater cooperation with, uh, you know, fellow uh, countries in Europe and yeah. also with the but know, I guess uh, also North America. I, I think presumably, Andy, what you're meaning by this is that it shouldn't be the responsibility of individual countries to have to be no. sort of dealing with this problem on their own, right? No, I, that's exactly what I mean. I think it should be an international agreement. And okay. I think it can rise above Brexit and the arguments of Brexit. And I think it's completely separate to Brexit. I mean, as a country in the world, we have a stake in the world, regardless mm. of our political um, foundation, uh, the same as America, the same as Japan, the same as everywhere. And I think th there's got to be an international agreement between countries, um, probably something from the UN to kick it off, uh, but it's you don't not want to get to them in God's sake. Uh, no, <laughs> there, there is that. <laughs> but, but someone has got to take the lead, you know, yeah. uh, on this, because what do we do with the other 320? I say strip them all of their citizenship and never let them back. Yeah. Um, but uh, they're just sort of, you know, uh, they're just sort of um, clouding around in a, in a desert-type camp. Yes, I think moment. that is the problem, Andy. Thanks for your call. I think that's right, isn't it, Rocky? Because a lot of the... I mean, the Shemima Begum case, for example, which kicked up an awful lot of uh, sort of debate in this country. Absolutely. You know, it turns out her husband was from Holland, I think, the Netherlands, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, and there was some suggestion that she might have to go there with him. But, I mean, her case is still... More, I mean, it's kind of unresolved still, isn't it? I don't it know was what a chaotic happening. situation. I think, at the time, Home Secretary Sajid Javid... Yeah. Uh, I feel that, in a sense, he tried shifting on to Bangladesh. I thought that was a little bit irresponsible, yeah. to be honest. The, the girl, she's never set foot in Bangladesh. 
Uh, she can't speak a word of Bengali. She might well be a Bangladeshi origin, mm. but she was born and raised here. And I can only imagine when Sajid was trying to, you know, foist her and shift her onto Bangladesh that all the bureaucrats in Dhaka were probably smoking their cigars and having a good laugh at him, yeah. to be honest. So I think there needs to be a more mature multinational approach in terms of how we actually deal with this problem, yeah, for sure. exactly right. Because we've also got the problem, I believe, of about three to 400 former um, jihadis who went to uh, fight for ISIS have been let back into Britain already. I mean, we hear about these very high-profile cases like Jihadi Jack and, and, and Shemima Begum, but there's many others who we don't hear about who are already back here. Now, I don't know, and I'm not sure I have any confidence in the way the state is rehabilitating those individuals. I think that there are some people who feel that these individuals can be de-radicalised. Uh, de yes. I think I take. What do you a, think? I have a more conservative position. I think that I'm, I'm, I'm still sceptical. I, I want to see more positive results. Yeah. But I think also with that, this is an experiment at the end of the day. Mm. You know, I'm very conservative when it comes to law and order and public security. This isn't something to you know to, to experiment with. I think ultimately. Right. You know, I, I'm, I'm very sceptical of those de-radicalisation programmes and how they're actually being orchestrated. This idea that we get former ex-extremists, you know, spearheading these these programmes, I think it's uh, political correctness. Well, I'm not mad, sure really. about anybody who's a former political extremist or a jihadi mm. becoming somehow uh, more ra uh, de-radicalised and able to help people, uh, yeah. stop other people from doing exactly what they've done. I think it's risky. It's that's, very that's risky. My view. Yeah, because, I mean, you have to buy into the fact that first you have to just believe them, which might not be a good idea to begin with. And when you see what happened at London Bridge, when you see people becoming radicalised just as a result of being on the internet mm. with some people without ever having to go and be trained to do anything, and you hear the police are still fighting every day about 500 different cases that they're investigating, you know, we still have a massive problem in this country and it's just been fortunate, I think, that we haven't had an incident of terror for a while. I think that we we should be very grateful to our intelligence communities. Yeah. They do, you know, ex exceptionally good work in terms of trying to keep us as safe as possible. I think in terms of, as I said before, I think this thing with the de-radicalisation programmes, I think it's a very risky way in terms of uh, conducting counter-extremism policy. Now, here's a question from someone um, which I'm not sure is a, is, is a decent question to ask you, but I'm going to ask it for, for your uh, answer anyway, sure. because a lot of people ask me this question, that they take exception to people talking about Islam uh, and Judaism being called a race. He says, why can't liberal snowflakes understand a simple concept? You are not born Jewish, Muslim or Christian. It is a choice. You can wake up one day and choose not to believe. I think that's very interesting. So we were talking earlier about that case about the young girl who criticised Halal Meats yes. in her academic work, and it was greeted with these comments, so this is an obscene racial comment. Yeah. You can be black and Muslim, yeah. you can be white and Muslim, yeah. you can be South Asian and Muslim. So this idea, this sort of almost this racialization yes. of Islam, it's just it's deeply unhelpful, right. and it's just factually inaccurate as right. well. Which then takes you back again to what we were talking about. We didn't quite finish the, the thought, I think, about uh, Islamophobia and hate crime. I prefer the term anti-Muslim prejudice. I don't even like the term Islamophobia, no, I if don't. I'm being particularly honest. I, I think don't. it's unhelpful. I don't think it's helpful. I don't think having a hate crime specific to uh, what somebody says is helpful. I remember there was a case in Scotland when I was living and working up there uh, of two guys who got into a fight in a bar, which is a pretty frequent occurrence in Scotland, right? The difference <laughs> being that these two guys, one was Scottish and one was English, uh, and the English guy, or I think the Scottish guy, called the English guy, you English so-and-so, whatever mm. it was, and it was then registered as a hate crime because it was supposed to be some kind of anti-nationalist, you know, thing that was said. Instead of, so instead of just charging people for having a punch-up, 
it got much more complicated and it was now a hate crime. And I just don't think that's, that helps I think anybody. it's a slippery slope as well. As I said, I think that one of the you know, one of the greatest things that, from my personal perspective, one of the greatest things about this country is the, you know, critical thinking, yeah. you know, critically analysing ideologies and their weaknesses, why they may be unhelpful in the modern British context. And I feel that with the Islamophobia definition, as I said earlier, there was a dangerous conflation between anti-Muslim prejudice, which we should stamp out and we should be very firm about, and, and legitimate concerns and legitimate criticism of Islamic, orthodox Islamic yeah. doctrine. Mm. Do you think orthodox Islamic doctrine does not belong in Britain? Do you think that, you know, we've had this assimilation conversation about... Absolutely. ..you know, women's rights in Britain as opposed to women's rights in Saudi Arabia? You know, if you come to live here from a Muslim country where women are treated as second-class citizens, and I know that many Muslims would say, well, that's not true, we don't treat them as second-class citizens, we just, you know, um, worship Well, they're talking nonsense yeah. if they say that that well, doesn't exist the, yeah, in the UK. Because they do. No, but what I'm saying is, is yeah. they would argue that, you know, putting uh, their women in, in burqas is... A is, is a mark of respect, it's not a mark of subjugation, do you know what I mean? What I'm saying is is that should uh, the assimilation conversation take place more... Absolutely. ..should we say, no, if you want to live here, you behave as if you are British? I think that in I think it's great that we're having these sort of conversations yeah. because I don't think they they happen. People often are frightened enough. of them. I think I think, but there's a, there's a lack of political leadership yeah. as well. That, that that's that's the truth. We mm. have politicians who are very scared about even raising these points. I think that in terms of are there certain things orthodox Islamic doctrine does have a place in the UK, I think it's something that we need to talk about right. a lot more. Okay. Because for me, from my perspective, I think that, you know, we have this whole debate about gender equality, but I think the one thing is that there's very clear cases of misogyny and patriarchal coercion within yeah. migrant communities. I expect our politicians to call that out. Yes, and they don't. But it's been fascinating talking to you, Rakeem. We must do this again because there's a lot Absolutely. more that we need to cover. Rakeem Hassan, research fellow from the Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism at the Henry Jackson Society. Thank you so much. Thank you for having and me. And thank you for guys for ringing in. You can keep calling. Uh, we've got lots more to do. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk Radio. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Working night to end of Casino, right? The movie with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci, uh, where he says, Joe Pesci says, you know, they were never going to let people like us run anything ever again. And uh, it's kind of the way I feel about journalism now, because uh, I used to run quite a lot of stuff uh, in newspapers and indeed uh, in radio. And now I just do a show, uh, which is far better for me and certainly far better for anyone that ever worked for me and certainly far better for any accountants that uh, I was ever <laughs> responsible to. There's a, there's a story this morning uh, that we spend a half of every working week sitting in meetings where nothing happens. Uh, so I can only say that we've gone to the guru of meetings here at Talk Radio <laughs> and it is David Spencer, Talk Radio's news editor, uh, a part-time meeting chair, it says here. Exactly. Um, now, obviously, you are a man in charge, so you need to have a lot of meetings. And it's very frustrating to have to attend them and also to be in charge of them, isn't it? It is very frustrating. And looking at these stats that have come out in this survey today, one of the things is waiting for everyone to arrive yes. for a meeting right. and the amount of lost time that there is, which is very frustrating. Yeah. And one story I was going to relate about, because in, in sort of a, a radio station, in a news organisation, there is actually a purpose to meetings. And defend the idea, I like a good meeting. Do you? But as in the key word there is a good meeting, yeah. <laughs> not a waste of time meeting. Right. I and hate it, meetings, by the way. Really? So, so just so you know, you avoid I'm, them, don't you? I've well, noticed you don't I've, go to them. Well, I don't go to them. There's a great adage that I was once given, one of those great sort of lessons in life, is somebody said, never go to a meeting that can start without you. Oh, that, well, hang um, on, I'm thinking about a lot of mine yeah. and, and so just wondering if I should if bother. If you can turn up late to a meeting they don't care... Don't bother going. It means you don't need to be there. It's good advice. Well, at Sky News, when I was there, they had the big 8 o'clock meeting, which is to plan the day's agenda, right. where everyone of any kind of relevance would attend. And, the... and so for people who don't understand the news business, that would involve sending people places, making sure you've exactly. got cover at certain points, and you're going to take, say, Jeremy Corbyn live, you've got a crew there, all of that. All of that planning, and it's a key meeting yeah. of the day. Puts them on the front foot yeah. for the rest of the day. So the, the boss of Sky News said everyone has to be there at 8 o'clock. People were turning up late, and the door will be locked. Yeah. From Monday, the door for this meeting will be locked if you don't turn up. Okay. What happened on the first day? He was the one that was late <laughs> and was outside and locked out of this meeting, which was obviously hugely ironic and hilarious. Yes. But uh, I got the point that actually if you drift in, and these days you have people on their mobile phones as well, hugely frustrating. Now, you'd, have just to, yeah, them. you'd have to do what the cabinet does, which is to leave your phone somewhere uh, before you sit down at the cabinet table. That's because apparently they don't want people texting and leaking outside of the cabinet, <laughs> which hasn't always worked. But have a listen to this and tell me if you've ever been in one of these meetings. So here's the thing with this, OK? Siobhan, this is what it is with this. Here's what um, the thing is. I'm Oof. sorry, Siobhan, but I am going to interrupt you here. Sure. Yes, please. Can I ask a question, guys? Yes. Sure. Yes, no, of course, Tracy, of course. I'm not being negative or anything, but I feel I need to say this. We've got eight minutes left here. What are we actually going to do if we actually run out of time? Right. Sure. Brilliant. Well, we're not going to run out of time, are we? OK, fine. Hurrah. But I'm just saying, what do we do if we do? Sure. 
Well... So, guys, um, what you do here is um, we totally focus on Plan B. I'm sorry? Right. Plan B? You don't prioritise Plan B. Now you're super dirty. We haven't got a Plan A, you stupid. OK. Well... No, sure, exactly. That's why you need a Plan B. What? Duh. That's W1A, <laughs> uh, which, funnily enough, I've never seen, and now I'm going to have to watch it all because it looks, sounds fantastic. Those are the kind of meetings I hate, right? I only... I mean, I, for me, the only... The maximum number of people in a meeting should be about three because many more than that, it turns, it, it turns into that. I, it, where well, somebody, it, where everybody thinks it's one a democracy in which, I, and, and in meetings, I don't work well in democracy. It's, <laughs> it's, if it's my meeting, I'm holding it. You speak when I want you to speak. If I want an idea from you, I'll ask you. Also, you get a dynamic of personality yeah. all the time, which means you get people that attend meetings that really are just there and observe and do fiddle with Possibly phones and don't say anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you get the ones that dominate and the few people sort of in between. Yeah. So I, I think the idea is to kind of have a proper structure so mm. that you don't waste any time, get on with it, make the points that you need to make and sort of spend 10 minutes if that's what mm. it is. And as I say, I think they can be effective at certain points of the day. In the industry we're in, there are times when you just need to go, right, let's just stop where we are, review mm. what we're doing. Doing, yeah. and then kind of agree in a team. But one of the things they, when you heard it there, buzzwords, phrases just are annoying. So the blue sky right. thinking and, you know, thinking outside of the box, yes. those sort of phrases that just end up being absolutely nothingness. Yes. And what you heard there in WNA, that example is, it was a sort of, that typical meeting where people are just saying words that right. mean nothing, going nowhere. And right. I think this survey suggests that a lot of people listening will recognise those meetings yes. where they just think, what's the point of being And here? some people go to those meetings specifically only uh, to kind of make a point to their boss. I mean, I used to have to go... I'll, I'll, I won't say which newspaper it was, it might give away the personalities, but I used to have to go <laughs> to quite a high-level meeting um, inside a building in Kensington um, in which um, all the sort of heads of department would sit... And there was one particular woman who ran the magazine um, who was literally like a rag doll, um, literally sitting in the chair waiting for the boss to come in. And as soon as the boss came in, she was she was completely sort of galvanised into life instead of walking, <laughs> wandering about, talking. She didn't talk to anybody else before the meeting started because she was considered herself too important. So we'd only address the boss mm. directly. It was a meeting of about ten people around the table. And only uh, she would only talk to the boss. She would not almost like you're no, no point you being there. No, no point context. you being there at all. And so those, those kinds of people are a waste of time. The other kind of people who, for me, are a waste of time are those who come in with some kind of really, really ridiculous point. Like if you're trying to work out what the forward strategy of your radio station should be, <laughs> they come in and go thinking outside um, the box. For example, uh, could we get please um, a, a bigger ice box on the second floor? <laughs> And you go, look, we're here to talk about the future of the company. We're not going to put you in a second icebox so you don't have to go to the third floor to get your ice. You know, that kind but, of thing. But there have been studies that I've I've read on some of those meetings, in fact, courses, when you when you talk about these things, how to manage a meeting, yeah. where people do feel they need to say something to contribute. So you're kind of having this event, mm. this meeting in the calendar, and people right. are turning up thinking, well, I'm going to that, I've now got to say something, I come out with something like an icebox, it's just to say something. I quite like the idea to shake them up a bit so that you're not sat down. Walking meetings I quite like, Oh yeah. partly just because I need to then do my 10,000 steps walking, a day. everybody's walking or just you? Well, well, well that, yeah, would, that wouldn't be very good. Like, well, Dave's like, just left. <laughs> that scene from uh, Midnight Express, yeah, you're exactly. walking around, I think, and then you start walking around the other way. Yeah, that exactly. upsets people. Yeah, it does, but also it changes your, your thinking in your brain if you start yeah. walking the other way so right. it's good for that but now if there's 12 of you and it's a walking meeting that's a bit tricky you end up looking like a tour in London yes. if you're not careful that's if you're not doing good that. also there's the away day which is always interesting oh well, uh, they are a waste you get of time. to go somewhere different because apparently that's supposed to uh, you Absolutely. know stimulate your creative Freshen juices yeah. I once went on a three day 
um, think tank. With <laughs> I think daily, I know how this with went. With the Daily Mirror, right? Uh, flew into La Manga, the golf resort. Very nice. Which was very nice. This was when the days... No wonder they haven't got any money anymore, right? Fleet Street. This is when Piers Morgan was the boss. So there was about 25 of us who all went down there. We spent uh, the best part of from about 3 o'clock Friday afternoon until about 3 o'clock uh, in the morning, drinking. Uh, we then had a meeting from <laughs> 9 until 12, at which the 3M girls was was, uh, was was thought up, actually. So we did get that one big idea. And then we spent the rest of the time playing golf and drinking, flew home on Sunday. Well, that sounds productive, though. You yeah. said that one idea out of yeah. it. At least you got something from it. Yeah. I, I dread to think how much it cost. <laughs> I worked somewhere where the management had one of those days where they disappeared off and the kind of then a big story breaks or something. And you go, where is everyone? Well, they're all in some woods, you know, getting to know each other <laughs> yeah, better. Right. Like uh, the Iron Man yeah, stuff. Exactly. And they came back Howling. from this from this sort of whole day session when they were bonding and coming up with ideas. And I said, what did you sort of learn from that day? The one takeaway... Yeah was that this person said, well, I now learned that I can't ask staff if, can you do a favour? Right. So he said, when you say, can you just do me a favour, apparently in management, that yeah. wasn't that. I said, so you spent well, a day... What sort of idiot was this bloke? I mean, you know, everybody exactly. knows that's not what you can say. You've spent a huge, you know, a huge amount of money and what else did you get from it? And right. it, often it's, it's a waste of time. I think 213 hours, people say, is the average for how much we waste in meetings. That's a lot of time. But I think it's just managing them properly, isn't yeah. it? I mean, there I mean, are... ma- it should be an optimum time, shouldn't there? I mean, my top optimum amount of time is about 20 minutes. After that, I've lost interest. When you, that actually surprises me that you couldn't last that long. Well, I'm probably just exaggerating <laughs> that. I once actually fell asleep in a meeting uh, up in uh, Scotland. Were you with, picked up on it? Uh, no, because I was the programme director of the radio station and I was uh, sitting in there, I think I had quite a late night, and uh, I was with the managing director and this guy that had been sent up, funnily enough, from, uh, from a company not far away from here. Um, and they were just going on and on and on. And these people used to have three-hour meetings, talking about budgets, talking That's about crazy. the clock, you know, talking about how we should change the way the adverts run. And I literally, I literally fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even notice, which was, and there was well, only three of us in the room. That's the the, the bit of a sad indictment yeah. on your. Uh, anyway, have you got there. any meetings to get to? I, I ha- have actually got a meeting to get to in the next half hour. What's but it about? Gonna, it's about the day. Is about what's going to happen what later and when there. we have other meetings. You know what you could have said there, really, to sort of get, set the cat much You said, I've, I've got to fire someone. <laughs> <laughs> now about that. Sorry, I was showing my cruel streak. <laughs> Never mind. David Spencer, thank you very much indeed. Hundreds of hours wasted in meetings. Don't bother. Uh, listen to talk radio instead. Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on talk radio. <laughs> 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 This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, 03444991000. Ian Collins coming up at one o'clock, in for Matthew Wright. Uh, Patrick Monaghan is up in Edinburgh with us as well. He's up there uh, with his show, Started from the Bottom, Now I'm Here. He is our favourite comedian here uh, on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. And just before we go to you, Patrick, we're going to talk to Georgia, who's in Horsham, uh, who wants to talk about vegan uh, cuisine, I believe. Hello, Georgia. Hello. How are you, Georgia? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. you. Yeah, what do you want to say? Yeah, well, I mean, I just heard a little bit about the, um, I've forgotten her name, but the nutritionist. That Monica, yeah, Monica Price. Yeah, yes, oh, yes. And um, I heard what she was saying about uh, watermelon and cooking watermelon. Yeah. I find that cooking watermelon on a barbecue is kind of the best way to cook it. Okay. Does it, not just, does it not disintegrate? 
No, honestly, its texture is quite firm and okay. it's able to hold it. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's very different from cooking like a meat, like a, you know, a slab of meat or whatever. Yeah. But I think the way that food and technology is going nowadays is like, you know, I'll get like a vegan steak or whatever and it tastes bloody amazing. Yeah. So, so delicious. No, listen, I mean, vegan food has definitely become, one, very trendy, two, very popular. I mean, in London, certainly now, it's impossible to find a restaurant that does the old-fashioned kind of, uh, oh, you're, you're a vegetarian, are you? Oh, would you like some uh, goat's cheese to start with and maybe a mushroom risotto, which is always what it used to be, you know. Um, whereas now, there's a much more choice. The only thing that I get asked a lot, George, and you can answer this maybe, is why do you want to recreate the taste of meat if you want to be a vegan? Of course. Well, I think there's no denying that you can buy meat and everything, and when it's all seasoned and delicious, you know, it, it can taste great. But the thing is, if you can buy an alternative which tastes exactly the same and involves involve no pain or suffering, and you're actually saving a hell of a lot of um, water, because water consumption is one of the biggest, like, um, sorry, where's the information? Yeah, I'm drinking some even down. as we speak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, like, if you can eat a product which tastes similar or the same and involves no cruelty or torture and actually is much, much better for the planet, I don't see why you wouldn't, to be honest. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that you wouldn't because it doesn't taste exactly the same. I think that's the problem. And, and a lot of people do really like the taste of the meat that they eat. And I think there's a lot fewer people eating as much meat as they used to be. And I think for a variety of reasons, I think people have worked out that it's not a great idea to have, you know, red meat every single day of your life. I, I have a very mixed diet where I'll sometimes eat uh, no meat at all. I'll sometimes eat something with chicken. I'll sometimes eat fish. You know what I mean? It's, I think people are much more eclectic about it now. People are a lot more careful and they're a lot more aware. I think with social media and everything the way it is now, people are able to kind of, you know, capture videos from inside, you know, slaughterhouses and things and even on organic farms and things. You can just see that the way that an animal is treated for the just something as simple yeah. as taste is, sure. you know, when we don't... Oh, it's horrible, yeah. There's no question it's horrible. I don't think anyone yeah. who eats meat thinks that's nice and they don't like looking no. at it. The other great thing about social media is you can act all high and mighty uh, and mm. be ridiculously snobbish about it as well. Yeah, yeah, and I think that people take it too far in that way, like, and make yeah. people feel guilty. I know, I think that's wrong. Is. You are the most reasonable vegan I've ever spoken to, Georgia, so thank you for that. And I'm going to let you go, only because uh, we've got to talk to a very important man. But we will talk to you again, I'm sure. I do like responsible and sensible people. I don't mind what you do, I don't mind what you believe in, as long as you do it sensibly and you're able to have a conversation about it. Patrick Monaghan is here with us. Patrick, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you? I'm very, I'm very well, mate. Now, how's Edinburgh? Because you've got your big show up there, the Gilded Balloon. Yeah. Um, it's on, uh, still on, isn't it? It's still on for yeah. another week, right? We are, we are literally in the homecoming now. This is the last week, so this is probably the best you're going to hear my voice. <laughs> you'll get the best out of it. Yeah. You know, what time? It goes out at 8 o'clock, though, so you've yeah. got... It's not that bad, right? Because you've then got sort of, you know, a couple yeah. of hours of drinking. You can still be in bed by, <laughs> by 2. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? People forget. They always think, they always say, oh, you're only doing one hour of the night, eight o'clock. But you know what? We have to run around. You know, it's like you're, you're doing bits and pieces. You're going to a couple of other shows where you sort of guest on. Because it is, if anyone's never been to Edinburgh before, it, it's like it's like the Las Vegas for comedians. It's literally every venue, like everywhere is a venue. I mean, Do you know what I find extraordinary, though? You must have yeah. people that you don't get on with because you get this painted picture that, you know, yeah. oh, we're all comedians, so we we all have something yeah, yeah, in common, yeah. so I'm amazed there's not more punch-ups. I mean, I've been to Edinburgh. Oh, I used to, well, I used yeah. to run a radio station in Edinburgh, and we did, we yeah. covered the festival, um, and I've yeah. also appeared at it, so I know what it's yeah. like. But I'm yeah. amazed that you don't get into punch-ups in bars with other comedians. Do 
do you know what? That is, uh, it has happened in the past. You'd have probably been here when it was happening. There was always like these famous stories of like one comic, you know, when they get a bit drunk and they're sort of taking the mic out another one and then they're just punching it. But the problem is, for everyone else, Nobody knows if that's a joke. Is, is this part of a show or yes. whatever? You know, so you just see like they probably think, "Oh, look at these! They're probably probably a sketch or something or a hidden camera." Yeah. But no, I think now the the thing is because it is so big, you you know, you, people just absorb. It's like you know, it's like when they try to do a comedy festival in London, it just wouldn't yeah. work because everyone's just got so much going on. Whereas here, I think it's quite good. You you like you say if you want to. You can avoid a punch of easy. Just yes, like, oh, and presumably as well, it's a more difficult place. Although you've got you're talking yeah. to maybe an audience of of people who like comedy mm. and who are there for a reason. Yeah. Presumably, if you're if you've got an audience who's seen about fifty five comedy shows in the previous yeah. three days, I mean yeah. you're going to have to be really up in your game, aren't you? Oh yeah, well that that is that's the double edged sword about it. That the people who come. The, the reason we do comedy is because they are comedy connoisseurs. They know their stuff, so you can't you can't be lazy. Anyone who comes here, who does a show that they haven't really written much or worked out through the year, you're going to get found out. And that's that's the good thing about this the festival. The only problem is you are then playing to people who turn up with schedules. They turn up with like you know like a a folder full of like you know like imagine that you've got like a work schedule or yeah. something, or it's like they do like a two week. Uh, detox or a retreat and then they've got they've got like we're doing this at 10 then we're going to go here at 11 30 we'll have a lunch here for 10 we'll do this we'll do yoga for 10 minutes and then we'll go back out and watch this show this show and you just think do you know i i i mean i sound bad here but i i just miss the old days where people just go you know what we'll have a drink and then we'll just walk up and we'll, we'll yeah. watch one show See think, how it goes. Don't kill yourself. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. now have it. you seen have you seen this guy olaf falafel who rather disturbingly calls himself a swedish surrealist i don't know what that means <laughs> What is? I thought all Swedes were surrealists. I know this is the Edinburgh Festival. I mean, I, I must admit, I'm, I'm going to be straight yeah. up with this. I'm not a fan. Yeah. I'm not a fan of these kind of stupid one-line type jokes. The joke is, um, yeah. have you heard the one about the man who kept shouting broccoli and cauliflower? He thought he might have florets. I mean, really? I'm not I'm not laughing. But this is this is the problem. The, the thing is, I think with Edinburgh, it's like. Um, they come and try and judge comedy, and you think, how can you judge it? It's just silly, isn't it? Where they go, this is going to be better than this. It's, it's just, it's like a buffet. It's like a range of everyone doing jokes and routines, and you've got to, as a comedian, it's all about observations, routines. There's all different styles of comedy, and I know what you mean. It's like, it's like, do you remember when we were watching? You imagine you're watching like Lee Evans or Richard Pryor or Robert Williams, and then you try and recreate one of routine. Yes. It doesn't make sense, does it? You just think, oh, oh, that's not that funny. You think, yeah, because you've got to watch him in that person. But with, I know what you mean. I, I avoid all these lists every year. You always see them. And yeah. You could read them, Joe, and you just think, it's, it doesn't do Edinburgh justice, because then people will be like going, no. they'll read 50 jokes and they'll go, oh, my God. And I've seen, you, you see this thing that you said about social media, you'll see it. The responses are funnier than... Well, they can be, yeah. Well, all I would say to you is don't try and reenact Richard Pryor's, uh, the, one of his funniest routines, which is the one that was born out of him setting fire to himself when his yeah, crack yeah, yeah. pipe exploded. He ran yeah, on fire remember. naked down the road in Hollywood. But listen, one, one final thing for you, Patrick. If there are tickets still available, uh, tell people yeah. where they can get them. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so it's at 8 o'clock every night at the Gilded Balloon. Literally, this is my last week. We'll finish on Sunday. Right. Uh, but, yeah, come down. It'd be fantastic. And in the description of your show, it talks about how yeah. you've been on the one show, Celebrity Squares. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't say anything about you being the official comedian for the Independent Republic I'm of Mike Graham. 
Do you know what, Mike? That's going on. That's, Good. That's, okay. No, I love that. I'm so proud of that. I'm putting that, that, <laughs> that, that is going on. Thank Excellent. You, and you have to come up. You have to come up and try and do it next time. Do a live show. For well, me. I could do. I was exhausted. The last time I went up there, I yeah. did three shows in a row from 11 o'clock at night. And yeah. so I never got to bed before about seven every day. It was quite exhausting. Yeah. But well, I'll try it out, Patrick. Listen, good luck, man. I've got to run. Patrick Monaghan, the official. Uh, comedian of this uh, particular radio show. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 